0: So I just went on the Sunnydale Home Depot website and I'm not bragging or nothing, but my bidet of evil is on back order. So, you know, that'll be coming eventually. Hi, and welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer YouTube series and podcast. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about First Date, the 14th episode of Season 7. First Date aired on February 11th 2003 and was written by Jane Espenson with Rebecca Rand Kirshner as executive story editor and Drew Z. Greenberg as story editor. This episode was directed by David Grossman. This is Grossman's final directorial episode for Buffy. Grossman has directed 13 episodes of Buffy across the run. His first was season three's Enemies. First Date is kind of a problematic episode. It is great in a lot of ways. It's confusing in a lot of ways that have to do more with overall world building this season, which has not been terribly consistent, but it also has some real problems and it's all mixed in together. So as I do this review, it's going to be a real mix. What I love, I love a lot. And what's not great is not great. All right, let's get into the weeds. In first date, Principal Wood asks Buffy out to dinner, which is nice because he's well, Principal Wood. But Buffy has some doubts about where he stands in the fight against evil. There he is, on the helm out all day every day. That's got to be like being showered with evil, only from underneath. Not really a shower. Up a day, like up a day of evil. Meanwhile, Xander meets a nice girl at the home improvement store. He lays on the charm and snags a date of his own. You'll need stronger rope than that. Want to have coffee with me later? Back at the house, Andrew is approached by the First in the guise of Jonathan, who tells him he needs to round up and kill all the potentials. When it becomes clear that Andrew is no longer aligned with the First, the First gets mad. How so many dead girls. will be so many. On Buffy's date, Principal Wood takes her to Sunnydale's best French restaurant that requires you to go through vampire-ridden alleyways to get to the secret, unmarked front door. And as the vamps ambush them, Buffy finally learns whose side Wood is on. I guess we should talk. On Xander's date, things have also taken a surprising turn. Or maybe not such a surprising turn. This can't just happen. It can't just keep happening that demon women find me attractive. On her date, Buffy learns that Principal Wood is the son of a slayer, and things are just getting interesting when Spike crashes the party, informing Buffy of Xander's plight. The three of them rush out together and save Xander from his demon date, and Wood makes a discovery of his own. He's a vampire. Later, the first visits Principal Wood in the form of his mother, who has more news for Wood, the identity of the vampire who killed her. Spike. What do you say? Thank you. First Date aired on February 11th, very close to Valentine's Day, and we celebrate our annual tradition of obligatory and desperate romantic spectacle by sending both Buffy and Xander out on dates that don't end very well, for different reasons. Let's start with Xander. Xander's bad date is played mostly for laughs. Pop music star Ashanti guest stars as Lissa, the very pretty girl Xander just happens to pick up at the home improvement store, inadvertently advising her on the best rope with which she can string him up over our lady of the perpetual uber vamp seal. He's charming, she's charmed, and it seems sweet and fine. Until we jump from this... I should have taken you on a nicer date than this. Well, I can think of something fun to do. To this, Xander, shirtless and strung up over the hellmouth seal, about to be bled dry to release another ubervamp. At this point, Xander's romantic life has been heavy on demons and former demons. We have Miss French from Teacher's Pet and Pada from Inca Mommy Girl, Anya, and now Lissa, the cat-eyed demon woman from this episode, which of course leads us to some jokes. First, with the emergency code he set up with Willow, and then this creaky exchange with Willow at the end of the episode. Willow? Gay me up. Come on. That's gay. Now, I'm not even going to go into how being straight or gay really doesn't fix the essential problem of being demon bait, but whatever. We have talked about the gay jokes so much in Buffy that I would like to just make a blanket statement that they're bad, they perpetuate the differentiation of LGBTQ, and I find them literally exhausting. When I start over again at the beginning with Buffy, I will address them again for people starting over with me, but for the rest of season 7, can I just let the blanket statement cover them all? Is that okay? Can I get a bulk discount on condemnations of gay panic? Costco, maybe? While Buffy's date might have gone a bit better than Xander's, it's not by much. First, her date takes her through a dangerous part of town to get to a French restaurant that is just weird, and then we get the reveal that he's a good guy because he killed a few vamps and is the son of a slayer. Then he feeds Buffy brandy-soaked peaches, right before Spike walks in and gums up the works. At which point, we've got clear romantic triangle tension, along with a tension of another sort, when we discover that the vampire Wood's been gunning for for years is actually one of Buffy's team. Despite our two official dates not going well in this episode, we do get some really nice moments for Buffy and Spike. I love this bit in the hallway. Buffy, I'm all right. You don't have to. What? Be noble. I'm not. Really, I'm all right. Think I still dream of a crip for two with a white picket fence? I love his respect for her in this scene, the way he works to put her at ease about the looming whatever they've got between them, even though we see as she walks away that despite his protests, he clearly still loves her. Of course he still loves her. He's Spike. He was born to love Buffy. That's just how it is. Also nice is this moment after the fight, when Buffy rushes to Spike's side first instead of her dates. There's a quick moment of warmth and tenderness, and Wood clearly sees that there's something between these two, and Spike sees her go to Wood and has an expression of resigned sadness. He knows he can't have Buffy, but that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt him to see her with anyone else. And then, at the end of the episode, he talks to Buffy about the first revelation that it isn't time to use him yet. And now that there's another strong fighter in the mix, maybe he should go. The noble sacrifice he's willing to make is clear, but Buffy's response isn't about the fight. It's about what she needs. I should move out. Leave town. Before it is time for me. No. You have to stay. No, you've got another demon fighting now. That's not why I need you here. Is that right? Why is that then? Because I'm not ready for you to not be here. So, it's Valentine's Day zero, actual romance and relationship one. I'll take it. You set me up, you son of a. So, it's a pack of dogs, a charm of goldfinches, and a murder of crows. What is the collective noun for Mr. X? I think we might need one for this season of Buffy. Emissive? of Mr. X, a maddening of Mr. X, a mashing of Mr. X. Hmm. As a quick review, this is what a misdirect is, when we as viewers are clearly led to believe something that later turns out not to be true. So far, we've had Giles being possibly dead slash the first, Dawn being a potential, Principal Wood being maybe evil slash almost definitely evil, and in this episode, Andrew siding once again with the first. Now, let me be clear, not all misdirects are bad. Dawn's potentially being a potential was excellently done, because if you go back and watch the clues, they could be read both ways. That means that the writers were playing fair with the audience. That one was fun. But often, in the pursuit of this fetishized twist, the show ends up purposely misleading us, sometimes even outright lying to us, to get us to believe something that later turns out not to be true at all. That puts the viewer in a position where they don't feel they can trust the writers. And that's not good. I would also put forth that when there are so many Mister X that keeping track of what the hell is going on becomes burdensome, it works against the efficacy of the storytelling. Oh, that's it! The Burden of Mr. X. That's the one. I got it. Someone go put that on TV Tropes for me, okay? What we have here in Season 7 of Buffy is definitely a burden of Mr. X, and one of the worst offenders is Principal Robin Wood's status as an evildoer. All season, he's been a shifty character. Let's go to the supercut. I actually have heard of you, Miss Summers. You graduated from the old high school. Am I right? Uh, yeah. How did well, you... Well, I better get back to work. It's gotta start deadening young minds. It's really nice to meet you. You have fun. That was suspicious. Oh, yeah. Um, apparently somebody left this in the courtyard and I was just returning it. That's some full-service principaling. I try. What kind of movies do you like? Oh, me? Mysteries. I love finding out what's underneath it all at the very end. And all of that is before we even get to this episode, where we see Wood's lovingly displayed secret weapons wall hidden behind his whiteboard, and the sketchy restaurant that he takes Buffy to that requires them to traipse through Vampire Valley in order to find the unmarked front door. This, of course, is when we discover that Wood is the son of a Slayer, the very Slayer, in fact, that Spike killed back in full for Love. Every slayer has a death wish. (laughs) So it turns out Principal Wood is good after all. He's good, good, good. We don't have to worry about anything except if we think about it for a minute. Because what the hell was he doing getting Jonathan's body off the seal and burying it out by an oil rig? Now, there could be a couple of explanations for this. One, he's aware of the seal. He knows how important it is to the first. And he thinks that covering it up with dirt will make it inaccessible to evil. Except it was covered with dirt With Andrew and Jonathan first found it, and they just dug it out. I mean, obviously the first can manipulate someone into doing that again or have a bevy of bringers do the job, so that doesn't really make sense. Also, let's see, you're a good principal and you find a dead man on an evil-looking seal in the basement of your new high school. Do you A... Call the police, have them deal with the body, and then call in the construction crew that should have put a cement floor into the new high school basement in the first place. Or B, take the body out, cover up the seal, bury the body where no one will ever, ever find it. It's A. The answer is A. So at this point, the only logical explanation is that somehow Principal Wood is under the influence of the first. While he's doing the burying, he looks like he's under a trance. And when he meets Buffy in the basement while holding the shovel, his claim that someone just left it out could be what he actually remembers. And this would mean that Spike is not the only sleeper agent in town. This would mean that Robin Wood has a trigger too. Oh wait, what's that? We never, ever, ever address that business again? Ever? look. I'm sorry, but it's not a spoiler if I tell you what doesn't happen. And that doesn't happen. We have what could be a very cool setup for Wood, but nothing happens. He's just your standard, uncomplicated good guy from here on out. And this is why, writers, you shouldn't be casual about a mislead. The twist is not the end-all be-all that we have all come to believe since M. Night Shyamalan and The Sixth Sense. Anyway, the bottom line here is that the Mr. X are firing wildly throughout Season 7, and with the exception of one of them, They're not well done, and they develop a sense of mistrust between the storytellers and the audience. So knock it off, season seven, okay? You're asking a lot of questions. Yes, well, I, uh, because, because I'm evil, and I want to do the best I can at that. So I want to know stuff, like, when, when do we kill Buffy. Are you wearing a wire? Here is the essential problem with Andrew. He is mostly a comedy mule for a very specific brand of jokes that I don't care for, but Tom Link's performance is so winning and layered that my annoyance just flies out the window. I love Andrew in much the way that I've always loved Anya. He, like Anya, is not served as well by the writing as he might be, but the performer does such great work with what's given that it tips the scales. While I don't care for the brief misdirect in this episode where we're supposed to think that Andrew's turning on the Scoobies, it is both brief and somewhat well-served, as we discover that he's actually setting up the first at the same time that the first figures this out. This B story of Andrew trying to discover the first weaknesses doesn't carry a lot of weight in the episode overall, but it's nicely done, and it gives Andrew a little more depth and a proof of allegiance that I've been desperately wanting from him. So you know what? I'll take it. I was concerned that my... Mandarin is a little thin, but as it turns out, she speaks Cantonese, which is thinner. But we muddle through, and as I suspected, ice cream is a universal language. What would she say? She's grateful to be in a land of plenty. Okay. Ciao. I am almost as tired of talking about proper representation as I am about gay panic, because everywhere I turn, there it is again. But we need to sit down with this for a moment and give this a serious, hard side eye. Buffy, as a show, does pretty well on feminism. Not always great, but mostly great. But is kind of flubbed on other kinds of representation. The vast vast majority of the characters on this show are white, and those few who aren't white are usually black. Now this season we have Robin Wood and his mother Nikki, and that's wonderful, a slayer and a badass demon fighter, no stereotyping that I saw, real, actually drawn characters. Awesome. We also have Rona, the potential, and in this episode, Lyssa, who is, you know, a demon, but at least she's there, right, prior to season 7? We had Kendra, who had the weird accent, but she was a slayer and she was kick-ass, so okay. Mr. Trick, who was one of the high points of season three, and the phenomenal suite from Once More with Feeling. Season four, we had Olivia and Forrest. And since then... Now, I'm sure I might be missing some people, but the thing is, the Buffy's writers' room was aware of all of this because they had Trick call out the super white demographics of Sunnydale in season three. Donald's got coin. Then the people? He called me sir. Don't you just miss that? I mean, admittedly, it's not a haven for the brothers, you know, strictly the Caucasian persuasion here in the Dale. Having a character call it out doesn't mean that you cease having responsibility to fix the problem. And while there have been a few more black characters and we have some gay representation with Willow, Buffy is not kicking ass in this arena. Even with Willow, we still have a regular procession of gay panic jokes, many of which we make Andrew now carry for us. Now, diversity is a problematic word. It makes it seem like representation is a big favor that white, cisgender, straight, able-bodied people hand out to, you know, the others, and that... Is a bad mindset. Shonda Rhimes, the powerful black female television producer who brought us Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, Private Practice, and How to Get Away with Murder, the producer who brought us our first black woman-led television show in almost 40 years and then doubled down by giving us another one two years later, she calls it normalizing. She makes television look the way that America looks. She writes stories about a variety of people who are all people not a collection of stereotypes. Normalizing is not a favor anyone does for anyone else. Normalizing is just recognition that there is more than one type of person in the world and everyone should see themselves represented in the entertainment that they consume. Okay, so back to Sunnydale. Back to Chowan. Up until this time, we've had, I think, only one other remotely significant Asian character on Buffy, the Chinese slayer that Spike killed in Fool for Love. She was kick-ass, but she died quickly, and I'm not sure, but I can't remember another speaking Asian character on Buffy. Correct me if I'm wrong. So, we have a few black characters, a handful of black vampire extras who maybe have a line or two before getting dusted, and almost no normalization of any other kind. And then, we bring in Chow An. A comedy mule whose joke of choice is, I can't speak English and I'm lactose intolerant. on has always bothered me, even before I started thinking critically about Buffy. The jokes, first of all, not funny. But worse than that, they come from a place of stereotyping and mockery. My disappointment here is visceral, and the only comfort I can take is that here we are, 15 years later, and Shonda Rhimes is one of the most powerful people in media, normalizing the ever-loving fuck out of television, and it's so much better than it was. But when I tell you, as I often do, that we need representation in writers' rooms, this is what I'm talking about. Again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but is there a single Buffy staff writer who wasn't white? Now, here's the thing. I'm not demonizing anyone here. I do not believe for a moment that this was a deliberate attempt to silence and differentiate people. I believe that the Buffy writers are good people who did great work and whose intent was good, even when the product they created carried within it some destructive elements. But the problem is, for a person of privilege in this culture, it is so, so easy to just not see things. Not seeing is an option for us. The only way to combat this privilege blindness is to make sure that we normalize the populations that have access to mass communications. It's important to have that representation in front of the camera, but it is essential to have it in our writers, the people who write these characters, the people holding the microphones. And one person on a writing staff is not enough, because they are expected to carry the responsibility for seeing everything, for everyone, and it's not fair to ask them to do that. We need to make sure that access to the microphone is highly normalized, because without that, characters like Chow An happen, and characters like Chow hurt people. We need to be better than that. Hi, can I help? You seem kind of confused. World building is a complicated thing. The job of world building is to create a world that is consistent, that makes sense, which means it's a lot of drudgery, a lot of detail work. If you do it right, it's invisible, and that makes doing it right not that exciting. But if you do it wrong, it creates a world that feels unstable. Even the readers, and by reader, I mean everyone who engages with any narrative, television and film included, but even the readers who aren't actively thinking about the detail work begin to feel a bit unstable in the environment. There's a trust that's built between a storyteller and a reader that good world building reinforces and bad world building wrecks. Now, getting every detail perfectly right, especially in something as sprawling as 144 episodes of Buffy, is almost impossible, so there's definitely wiggle room and a certain amount of forgiveness. But I think that a fairly high percentage of the people who struggle to enjoy season seven have a fair argument in their corner. A lot of it just doesn't make sense. We've already talked a bit about how the first doesn't really make sense as an antagonist for a lot of this season, and first date doesn't exactly help with this problem. The first appears to Andrew as Jonathan and asks him to gather up all the potentials into the basement and kill them. Now first of all, Andrew wasn't able to kill a pig, effectively. We have a perfectly good sleeper agent in that house that the first has shown it can monkey with any time it wants, Spike. And yet all we get for why not use Spike is the very vague, it's not time yet. While that adds an air of foreboding to the Spike storyline which is nicely used later in the episode, in this storyline, it feels like a hand wave. Why not use Spike? Because we want to do a quick misdirect with your loyalties, Andrew, ending with you proving yourself to the Scoobies. But that's a writer reason, not a world reason. Add to that all the misdirects from this season, most of which end up taking their cut out of World Building's budget, and things start feeling shaky enough that even the small stuff starts to feel bigger. Like this. Robin Wood looks at Spike while he's driving. He looks at Spike in the rearview mirror. Now, his glance at the rearview mirror when it happened, I thought was excellent. He was looking at nothing, right? So he knows Spike is a vampire. So cool. So subtle. But then there's this He's a vampire. Wood says this as though surprised, as though he had no idea Spike was a vampire prior to that moment, as if looking in his rearview mirror and seeing nothing wasn't a pretty big damn clue. Which meant that when he looked in his rearview, He really was looking at Spike, which means his rearview mirror is magic. Or something? A new feature in the 2003 Ford Focus? I don't know. And then we've got Xander, all strung up over the Hellmouthy seal. Now, previously, we saw that Jonathan bled all over the seal with a ton more blood than we get out of Xander here, and that failed to activate the seal. Yet a few drops from Xander ends up opening up the seal enough that a Turrican arm comes out and gets chopped off, which is kind of a big deal because now we know that there's more than one Turrican in this vending machine, which I think was information we didn't have before, right? I mean, that's significant, right? And since it literally grabbed Wood's foot, we know it's not just that no one noticed the extra limb on top of the now-closed seal, right? No mention of the Turrican at all. But back to the blood. Okay, maybe Jonathan was too small and didn't have enough blood to open the seal, but once the seal was opened, it's like a pickle lid jar, Spike's blood loosened it, and now any old amount of blood will do? Maybe. And if we had a world that wasn't as shaky in so many other ways, we might be able to assume all of that without extra explanation. But as it is, the trust is eroding, and it can make season seven hard to believe in for a lot of viewers. And I get it. I love season seven for a lot of reasons, but sadly, the world building is not one of them. All right, that's it for today. This episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by Chipperish Media producer Ariella Jaglum. Ariella supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level, and as a reward, gets to produce whatever show she wants. Thank you, Ariella, and thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. Visit patreon.com chipperish to find out how you, too, can become a Still Pretty producer. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Season 7, Episode 15, Get It Done. Until then, stay pretty. Still Pretty is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com chipperish. Oh, hey, I just got first date applies also to Andrew because he has a date with the first with the wire. Clever. God, Espenson, you minx.